0: From the Salem Center for Policy at the University of Texas at Austin, welcome to an episode of Policy in Pieces. I'm your host, Scott Bogus.
1: But let's, let's be frank, you know, and I said this when I was a board member, the audit standards are still mostly those that were in place and written during the era of self-regulation. These are audit standards that were heavily criticized in the congressional hearings on Sarbanes-Oxley. These are audit standards that were written with almost no investor input. You know, if you want to figure out which audit standards are are still the old ones, just go read them. And you'll find the ones that have antiquated language and, and are written in non-gender neutral language. Everything's he. You know, he should do this. He should do that. We don't do that anymore.
0: That's Jay Brown, a law professor and recently departed board member of the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, also known as the PCAOB, talking about audit standards that, 18 years after the Enron scandal, still reflect the self-regulation era and need to be updated. We talked to him about the role of the PCAOB in overseeing public company audits, what he learned during his time there, including work that still needs to be done for the PCAOB to reach its full potential. My returning co-host today is Macomb School of Business PhD student, min Kim. Jay, it's great to have you on our program this morning uh, to talk about the PCOB, the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board. Uh, You served as a board member from 2008 till earlier this year. I believe you left in January. Um, Just what are you doing now?
1: (laughs) I'm back teaching. Uh, I started before I went to the PCOB. I had had a long career teaching at the University of Denver, and I'm back teaching again, Uh, now getting an opportunity to channel insights from having actual experience at a a regulator into the teaching process. And hopefully, it'll make my teaching more um, relevant to the students who are in my classes.
0: So you you are or were a DC power couple. Your wife is a SEC commissioner. And she even served as the acting chair of the SEC this year. What was that like uh, to have jobs where did you have to have a firewall between you when you uh, interacted?
1: Yeah, well, actually we did. Um, you know, the, the SEC oversees the, 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 the PCOB and, you know, when I'm present on the PCOB, there is some element of sort of ethical restrictions and things like that. So we definitely did have a firewall. Which made it kind of interesting. We would sometimes learn about what the other one was doing by reading the newspapers. But you know, that's how it is when you when you're in that situation.
0: So you're not conflicted anymore. But does she know you're on this program, or do you know that she's coming on later this fall?
1: That much I do know. We 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 can share uh, in in this in this post conflict uh, environment. We can share common speaking engagements and things like that. So I know you guys will be talking to her in a couple of weeks.
2: Hey Jay, so your background is in law uh, and you have both a JD in law and a PhD in government. So can you talk about why you chose to serve at the PCAOB? You
1: know, when I had the opportunity, you know, I I have to say it was not a hard decision. You know, I think after a long teaching career at the University of Denver Law School, you know, it's an honor really, uh, you know, to have an opportunity to actually put experiences and understandings into practice. So. You know, there was never any issue for me in terms of taking
2: the position, and and frankly, it was quite a you know a privilege to be able to be in that position. And speaking of those experiences, could you talk about how how they helped you serve at the PCOB specifically?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I think when you come into the PCOB, I think you clearly want to have a, a good understanding of the federal securities laws. I mean, that's after all sort of the you know the primary space that the PCOB occupies. But what I found really unexpected was, you know, during my long teaching career, I I kind of developed some level of understanding of the administrative law process. And it turns out it turns out that the PCOB is very much an organization that in our in our system of government has a kind of an odd Uh, position. You know, unlike the SEC, which is a government agency, the PCOB was set up as a DC nonprofit. So the PCOB has regulatory functions, it brings enforcement cases, it writes rules and things like that. But it's not quite a government agency. And when I was at the PCOB, part of the, the, the thing I tried to fight for, one of the things I tried to fight for the most was that the PCOB should be more transparent about what it does and how it makes decisions and things like that. And what I was able to do was say it should be at least as transparent as government agencies. But because it's a DC nonprofit, it's not subject to all of the transparency requirements of government agencies. So I found my my understanding of administrative law, I think, really was important, and it helped, I think, inform a lot of the things I tried to do while I was at
2: the PCOB.
0: Yeah, so that's interesting because if you think about the PCOB, it's overseeing uh, audit firms. It's an accounting-related profession, but you're not an accountant. You're a lawyer. And so can you just describe like why the board includes non-accountants? Is, it, is there a firm requirement to have non-accountants or uh, what is the logic for who oversees it?
1: Yeah, you know, it, it's, a, it's a good question, right? And, and you know, one of the things that I would say is the statute requires th- that there are two CPAs on the board. So there is some sort of kind of guarantee that there's some accounting uh, expertise on the board. And so then the question becomes, how much expertise in one area do you need? You know, what I found at the PCOB was my background, I would say, is more in the area of disclosure. It's more in the area of corporate governance. It's in the area of administrative law. And I would say that that Those are areas of expertise and understanding that are important and you need them. The other thing is, is that I think there are ways that the PCOB operates that's very consistent with how things were done during the era of self-regulation before the PCOB was created. And I have to say, from my perspective, someone who was, let's say, not raised their entire career in the accounting profession, I found some of the ways the PCOB approached the decision making process to be... um, Something that should be rethought. And maybe we'll talk about some examples of that. So I think different perspectives, uh, I think, are important and necessary. And I think that's particularly the case when the, the, the mission of the PCOB is the protection of investors in the public. So you need people who really are well-versed, I think, in areas that are important to investors in the public that, need, that, that should be participating in, in, in the decision-making process and the direction that the PCOB goes in.
0: So when the when the search starts for a board member, it's easy to target accountants. You know the profession, but how do they find someone like you who's not accountant that's relevant to the activities? Like, how how are you identified? And there's a search going on right now. How are they identifying your replacement?
1: I think that um, you know. So I I I don't know the answer to the identifying my replacement, but but I I know that with my own particular circumstance. Uh, you know, they have an open application process and I applied for it. So, you know, it would start with there needs to be kind of a notion that, the you know, the people with the right kind of background and the statute, by the way, specifically says that people appointed to the board need to have some connection to the investor community, or at least have been sort of, participating or understand the needs and interests of investors. So, you know, it starts with making sure that the people that that when there's an open application process, you get a good mix of people, then presumably they're vetted for their different expertise and requirements. Uh, You know, I would say that in the vetting process, the commission who, who of course, selects the the board members does need to look for expertise and understanding. I think that goes beyond maybe sort of the traditional areas, I think, that have been uh, represented on the
2: board so far. So, taking a step back, uh, when and why was the PCAOB founded, and who are its members?
1: Yeah, again, I, I, another really, really good question. So, so when we talk about the foundation of the PCAOB, you have to go back to Enron and WorldCom, and you know we've had so many financial crises since then. That's really like almost ancient history because that happened back in two thousand and two. Um, but if you if you look at two thousand and one, Enron was listed in the fortune 500 as the seventh largest corporation in america so here is this corporation that's huge right by by any measure and a year later it's filing for bankruptcy so what you of course know is there's something seriously wrong here and and congress when congress looked at what happened with enron blamed a lot of parties you know management lawyers but they also put some of the onus on on the accounting profession So what Congress decided to do was pass legislation, the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, and in the Sarbanes-Oxley Act created the PCOB. So what the PCOB was assigned to do was oversee audit firms that audit public companies. You know, one thing I do have to say that I very much appreciate in that legislation was that. Congress made the mission of the PCOB extremely straightforward and clear. You know, we do not have a tripartite mission, which is what the SEC has. The PCOB's mission is to to look out for the interest of investors and the public. I think that's very, very important. That was something I, I you know, thought about a lot and tried very hard to make sure the PCOB was working in that direction.
0: So if we think about Enron and Arthur Anderson, which no longer exists, you know, one view is that they failed, they were wiped off <laughs> the face of the planet. And that was the discipline that would, you know, help the rest of the audit profession know, oh, you know, there's a real failure here. But when you look back at the PCOB and its mission and what it's done, what do you say to somebody who, like, had that view that there doesn't need to be a PCOB and the market was working? Do you
1: think it's accomplished its goals? That's a complicated question. I don't think there's any question that audits after the formation of the PCOB, at least there's no question based on what I sort of see in the academic literature and then from my own sort of observations and experiences, I don't think there's any question that audits are better. But that means audits are better if you define them based on are auditors conforming to the audit standards. But let's let's be frank, you know, and I said this when I was a board member. The audit standards are still mostly those that were in place and written during the era of self-regulation. These are audit standards that were heavily criticized in the congressional hearings on Sarbanes-Oxley. These are audit standards that were written with almost no investor input. You know, if you want to figure out which audit standards are are still the old ones, you know, that because the PCOB has rewritten some of them, just go read them and you'll find the ones that have antiquated language and, and are written in non gender neutral language. Everything's he, you know, he should do this, he should do that. We don't do that anymore. And so these are out of date standards. So if what it means is audits are getting better based on on the standards, But the standards are are, don't have the quality that they still need to have. One can still step back and ask the question: You know, how good are audits really? So that's one issue. The other issue, really, that that that, that I that I see out there is there's so many contemporary issues that are going on in the audit profession and in the disclosure area, and and the PCOB needs to be more active in the discussion. The PCOB doesn't have to, you know, go out and say, "Oh, you must." Do this or you must do that. Let's take, for example, you know, review of non GAAP and, and, and things like that. But the PCOB can and is the appropriate regulator, it seems to me, to lead the discussion on how the audit should evolve, you know, to cover some of these important topics that are out there. And, and for the most part, you know, the PCOB, at least sort of while I was there, was sitting on the sidelines.
0: So, should we look at audit standards from a layperson's perspective, a non a accountant? Is an audit standard just a rule? Like, how should we view a standard in the regulatory parlance?
1: Yeah, it's a you know again, it's a, it's a, it's a good question, and I've thought about it a lot. So so when the PCOB adopts standards, and and again, let's go back to two thousand and three when the PCOB opened its doors. So the PCOB is inspecting is audits and making sure that the audits meet the standards, right? So it needed a set of standards. And on the day it started, it couldn't just rewrite every standard. So it adopted the existing set of standards with the idea that they would be rewritten. Now, if you go back and you look at the uh, historical record and you look at the standards that were written during the era of self-regulation, the standards are very broad and very vague. They have very few specific requirements in them, so if you sort of ask what do auditors have to do in an audit, there's not a whole lot that it that, that they have to do there's a, almost everything in an audit is a matter of judgment, so that was a deliberate decision that at least in some cases was designed to reduce litigation risk and that's again very clear, I think, from the historical record. you know if there's less specific requirements or fewer specific requirements then there are fewer things that can be pointed to to say oh auditor you didn't do the audit right so it was designed to reduce litigation risk at least in a lot of cases the truth of the matter is the PCOB has since its formation still write standards in this same way but of course the explanation has changed we're not talking about it's designed to reduce litigation risk we're talking about how it's designed to be scalable and what scalable means is there's this sort of philosophy that a standard should be broad enough and vague enough that every audit firm should be able to use the same standards. So think about that for a minute. You have the big four with hundreds of thousands of employees and billions of dollars of revenue. And then you have the audit firm that has one person who does an audit of an inactive public company, and they're subject to exactly the same audit standards. So is that? The, you know, is that is that the appropriate approach to take? Well, I can tell you at the SEC, and Scott, you know this, you know, the disclosure system is if you're a big company, there's one set of rules. If you're a smaller company, it's a less complicated set of rules. You're allowed sort of to do, to disclose a little bit less. And it reflects the fact that big companies and little companies have different considerations, different resources, different concerns. And that, it seems to me, clearly needs to be considered and thought about in the audit space with respect to to, to standards so what i'd say is there's plenty of room to retain a principles based approach to standards that also includes a blend of more specific requirements particularly requirements that may be applicable to let's say larger firms and i will also say that investors have been asking for this and i think this can be done through changes to the standards but it also may require better guidance by the PCOB on what those standards mean.
2: As a board member of the PCOB, can you discuss what your day-to-day job and your role look like?
1: Yeah, um, you know, there are five of us and, and uh, board members, of course, have to approve inspection reports. They have to approve enforcement cases. If standards are around, they have to approve them at least with respect to standards, you know, they're reviewed and draft and things before they're finalized and, and issued publicly. So that's sort of the the kind of the standard thing. I, I spent a lot of my time while I was there doing outreach, outreach mostly I would say to the investor community. Although I did meet occasionally with with audit committees and, and and sort of others, um, you know, the PCOB is really not a very well-known regulator. And so some people will say, well, yeah, it's because it's really small. But you know what's funny is it has about the same budget as the Federal Trade Commission, and it has about the same number of people as the Commodities Futures Trading um, Commission. So, you know, it's not really small in the sense of there are plenty of other government agencies that are the same size sort of either by people or by, by revenue. It's just not well-known because the PCOB, I think, kind of tries to fly under the radar. And I think it needs to be more, I think people need to be more aware of what's going on at the PCOB. And I tried really hard to to do some of that when I was there.
0: So as a board member, you mentioned or you alluded to the fact that some of the audit standards needed to be updated. Like, what is the role of the board in setting the agenda and doing just that? Like, how much influence did you have over that process?
1: Well, yeah, again, another good question. I mean, when I think about the agenda, I think about, you know, I, I go back to, to first principles. You know, this is about what do investors need and want, you know? And, and what I can tell you is while I was there, you know, when I look at what we, we did do or what we did talk about, it's more to me about what we didn't do and what we didn't talk about. You know, so so one thing I would say is. You know, there was a concept release put out by the PCOB in I think it was December of 2019 on quality control, and if you go and read the comment letters, investors weighed in heavily I think on that 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 uh, standard, and suggested a lot of changes and a lot of uh, areas where maybe there needed to be more disclosure, maybe there needed to be greater independence. You know, they they made a lot of suggestions, and we haven't seen yet a a uh, sort of any outcome of that whole process. So that sort of needs to happen there are areas you know for example we i mentioned non-gap before we could talk about esg metrics and things like that there are areas like that that are extremely important to investors and there is a way that pcob can start a conversation about the role of the audit in those areas it's through a standard called the other information standard where auditors during the audit have to sometimes look at kind of other information so the question would be what do they have to look at and then what do they have to do when they look at it and so that's an area where it seems to me the PCOB should be active yet rather than promote that or use that as a standard to engender these discussions during my tenure at the PCOB the PCOB actually took it off the agenda and I issued a public statement opposing that and and objecting to that you know the other thing the last comment I'll make is it comes back to the discussion we had before a lot of those standards are still the original standards from the self-regulatory era, and you know it's 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 now what since 2003, so it's 18 years later that those since those standards have been put in place, and it's really time to systematically go in and re-examine them and decide whether those are in fact the appropriate standards for current circumstances. Um, and and I think that also needs to be done, and that also did not happen while I was there.
0: Yeah, so I think we want to follow up on a number of things you said, but I want to start with academic research. I know you've made public statements about the value of academics and their research, and you're an academic, and you've engaged in it. And I'm wondering, in terms of updating the standards, inspections, examinations, the whole program of the PCOB, how is it influenced by academic research? Uh, How should it be influenced by academic research?
1: yeah scott i would start by saying it's not influenced enough uh you know what i did see while i was there i stayed on top of the academic research we have a good you know economic office era at at, at the PCOB. i keep saying we because i haven't quite fully detached i think from the PCOB, but there's good economic research that's done at the PCOB and they follow the academic research and they circulate stuff to the to the board and also they just circulate the new papers and things like that i i stayed on top of it it's a lot of work there is a lot of research that goes on out there and what i have to say is you know in every set of research look i'm an academic a legal law professor there's some good law scholarship there's some bad law scholarship same is true with respect to accounting and finance but I have to say that the accounting and finance academic work is extraordinary on the whole. And and that it that's not just the ones that are analyzing sort of pre-existing data sets or creating data sets. It's the behavioralists and it's the thought leaders. There's so much out there that can influence or should influence the direction that the PCOV goes in and and, and kind of it helps the PCOB structure its inspections and helps structure its regulatory approach and its approach to standards. So uh, there's no question in my mind, there's so much insight that could be gained from that. And I think the, the PCOB needs to do a better job with that. I'll give you one quick example. Um, although, you know, we could have probably a whole talk on this. You know, the PCOB collects an enormous amount of data from the firms you know through its regulatory oversight process most of that data can't be made public and that's really a matter of statutory restriction but it's still out there and Academics can come in and with the right set of sort of restrictions and limitations and all of that, you know, to preserve confidentiality, can come in and examine that data and frankly mine that data and provide insights. Some of those insights might be that the PCOB is not doing it the right way or could do it a better way. Some of that are insights that would benefit the public. I view that information as a public good and we have an obligation to make sure that the most is made out of that information. And I have to say, I think the PCOB could do a lot more in
2: that space.
0: Yeah, you front run my next question and it was it was actually the reverse, I'm gonna ask it anyway, which is what is the responsibility of the PCOB to inform academics? Uh, they have all this wonderful information uh, and not just information, the contextual information, like to what extent should academics be involved in PCOB matters seeing how things are done so that when they write papers and they do their research, they can put it in the proper context and they come outside of the ivory tower. And I'll just conclude by saying, I know historically the PCOB has run joint conferences with accounting journals, like the Journal of Accounting Research, which is housed at the University of Chicago. Like, how well do you think that worked in your estimation and what should it look like going forward?
1: Yeah, you know, had I stayed longer, Scott, it's an area that I would have liked to have again, tried to sort of help implement maybe some structural reforms, here is my take on it. My take is is that the, the, the incredible research that academics do, I think that they're oriented around getting the research done, and they're not necessarily oriented around how can the PCOB use it. Now, I would say that every article I read invariably had a section that said, here's why my research is important, and there might be a sentence in there that would say, and here's why regulators should take it seriously. And I almost always just turned to that. I wanted to sort of see what they would say but whether it's from a lack of understanding of how the PCOB really operates or whether it's from you know kind of in the academic world they don't really need to sort of think that hard about how might the PCOB actually use this on a day-to-day level so then what the PCOB has to do is they have to find these articles and then they have to kind of translate them into kind of what the PCOB does right which means the PCOB needs to have a process in place to do exactly that so i do think that the two groups need to figure out a way to make it easier for them, for each other to use kind of what's out there. And I think some progress could be made in that. I think the onus is on the PCOB. I think it's the PCOB that really stands to benefit from this in in, in such a significant way. But I think all academics would enjoy seeing their their academic work actually get used and get implemented. You know, I tried hard also when I was there to to cite research in my speeches. And I also tried sometimes if I was using something or or I was concerned about it or I wanted to know more, I tried to reach out to academics if for no other reason to let them know because it's otherwise a black hole, you know, that their research was actually being thought about and used. And I think the PCOB could also do more of that. That would then encourage academics to say, let me bring something to the attention of the PCOB."
2: You discussed this briefly earlier, but as a self-regulatory organization, how much autonomy does the PCOB have?
1: Yeah, that's a, again another another good question. So so when we talk about autonomy, right, the question so one question would be autonomy from the profession, right? I mean the PCOB was created as an independent regulator and i think independent here meant independent of the profession the other one was independence of the sec so the sec of course exercises a lot of it has a lot of influence the statute was set up so that when the pcob made decisions the decisions often had to be then approved by the sec so let's take standards clearly the way the st- statute is written is the pcob writes the standard or the draft standard Then it gets submitted to the SEC, and the SEC has final say on whether that standard is approved or not. Uh, The PCOB can't go forward with a standard until it's approved by the SEC. So the SEC has this kind of nuclear authority, thumbs up, thumbs down on the standard. But you know, that's the statute, right? And I would say over 18 years, you know, the relationship has evolved. So, you know, while I was there, one head of the office of the chief accountant at the SEC, And that's the office at the SEC that I think has the most routine interaction with the PCOB. That head of that office said in a speech that his office was involved in the standard setting activities at the PCOB, and this is a quote, through the life cycle of the process, from the development through implementation. So the entire life cycle. This suggests a level of interaction that's, let's be frank, is not limited to the final approval process. Now, in general, I don't think there's anything wrong with feedback on these things, but I would say the interaction should be more transparent and I think better understood by the public.
0: Well, it's interesting that you say that, and I, I guess I hadn't picked up on that, but I do recall, at least during my time at the SEC, we interacted heavily with the PCOB on standards, but it was always, in the economic unit, it was always through the lens of providing comment. It was never assumed that You know what we said had to be taken. It was more of a, here's how we think about these things. Incorporate them, you know, as you see fit. But I I think at least the staff level, if it gives you any reassurance, we never thought that we were telling the PCOB what to do. (laughs) Let me let me switch gears a little bit here, but still stick on the theme of SROs. Uh, In many contexts, not just the PCOB context, SROs are often viewed as being captured by the industry and i just wonder can you provide you know your views on the pcob within the context of that particular allegation
1: you know again this is an area you know when i started i said that my administrative law background i thought was important you know before i came to the pcob i had read a lot about capture and thought a lot about capture and and so, you know, it 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 it's a it's a nuanced kind of area. It's it's easy to say something is captured by sort of pointing at kind of different facts or something like that. But but the truth is capture is is it's it it it's a complicated issue. So here's my view on with respect to the PCOB. There isn't any question, right, that the PCOB has a certain amount of interaction with the audit profession. And frankly, if you go back and you read the KPMG trial transcript. You'll see that the interaction, I think, can sometimes be um, considerable, right? But but, you know, there's an inevitability to some of this to regulate an industry, you got to understand the industry and that requires some degree of interaction. So then you have to step back and say, well, so what do you do about that? Well, what what investors in the public want to know is they want to make sure that these interactions, however necessary, are not driving the policy determinations that the policies are still determined in the interest of investors and the public. So the way you do that is you make sure that you have out, you have robust outreach to investors and public, and you make sure that you integrate those views into the decision making process. So if investors know the PCOB is listening to them and taking their views seriously, there's just going to be far less concern about capture. The other thing I would say is, is that, um, you know, if you're going to so then you turn around and you say, well, we have to have adequate investor involvement if you're going to have adequate investor involvement, you have to have a certain degree of transparency about your activities. It's just not um reasonable for investors to be expected to comment on, frankly, what they don't know. So I've said in speeches while I was at the PCOB that, that the PCOB has a serious transparency problem. And while I was there, I urged the PCOB to make some changes to make the organization more transparent. So for example, including disclosure of out meetings with outside organizations or entities, you know, organizations or entities that met with the board and the agendas of the meetings. I think if you're at the SEC and, and some outside organization meets with the entire SEC, it's basically a public meeting and, and that all, all that information is made public. The PCOB is not subject to that requirement, again, because it's not a regulatory uh, agency. It's a DC nonprofit, but I think they should be making that same information public. I think that the investors in the public would like to know that. I have to, again, say I was not very successful. in. Um,
0: How would that be done? Would that be like a vote of the board? They all agree to make these, these meetings public in some sort of comment
1: file? Yeah, I wouldn't, you know, Scott, there's sort of different layers of this, you know, so some meetings could be public, uh, you know, there there could be instances where you think I want to have frank discussion. So maybe I don't want the meeting itself to be public. But what I certainly think is the case is you should at least notify the public that the meeting occurred and you should certainly provide the public with the agenda at the meeting. You know, then I think, as, you know, so, so I would start with that you know, because the PCOB doesn't do that.
0: So every once in a while, there's a stumble. Uh, and recently, KPMG uh, hired some employees, former employees of the PCOB that maybe took some sensitive information they shouldn't have and shared it. And a big deal was made about that in the press. And can you just talk about that episode and how that affects the reputation of an organization uh, like the PCOB?
1: Yeah, the PCOB takes a really serious hit when things like that happen. I mean, it, you know, there's a level where it should, of course, right, because because those things shouldn't happen. But... But because the PCOB is so little known, you know, that when it does break into the press, it's often for, let's say, something like that. And as a result of that, what that does is it's not that the public knows, well, boy, we've heard a lot of these really great things about the PCOB. And here's this one bad thing. It's the one bad thing kind of blocks out the sun and sort of blocks out the universe. So this is another reason why the PCOB needs to be more, um, I think upfront about what it does and its activities and things like that, so that the public has a more complete sense of what goes on at the PCOB. And it's not just a series of scandals, you know, things like that. You know what I would say while I was there. So the the KPMG scandal happened before I got there. Um, You know, we were careful and and and, uh, you know, we're hopefully have procedures in place and things like that to to prevent this from occurring again. But what I would say is I think the biggest defense against things like this It's leadership at the top. And it's leadership both in terms of ethical behavior, but also in terms of promoting the mission. You know, the staff really are motivated by the mission. They're all type A people who came often came from large firms who are very talented, smart people, and they're committed to the mission. And the more they feel like the mission is promoted at the top, I think the more likely they will see what they do and see sort of questions maybe when it comes up about their behavior through the, the lens of how is it consistent with the mission. So I think the strongest way to prevent these kinds of things from happening in the future is have strong, strong leadership at the top that emphasizes the mission of the agency.
2: In the last few years, there have been numerous scandals such as Wirecard uh, in which fraud went undetected. And I think auditors were getting some flag for not being able to catch these things in advance. So could you discuss what role auditors play in detecting fraud under the current auditing standards?
1: Yeah, I, I can discuss the role. And what I can say about the role is it needs to be stronger. It's a very important area. And so, you know, we, we, we want and expect auditors to be involved in this area. Now, it goes without saying fraud is 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 a, you know, it means a deception. Right. So, I mean, and that deception is from the public. It's also often deception from the auditors, right? So no one, no one expects auditors to catch every single fraud. Here's what can happen in an audit. If you properly conduct an audit, you will find red flags. And when you find red flags, you need to run them down. And the better run audits will likely find more red flags and run these things down. So there clearly is an, a, an important role for auditors. and. You know, what I would say in this area, area, which is, it's a little bit frustrating. It comes up every time there's a significant fraud, every time there's a significant failure that again looks like it could potentially be from fraud. This area comes up again, but then it kind of seems to fade again without any sort of permanent change. And, 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 you know, there needs to be some sustained focus on this. I think audits need to elevate and take uh, and do more in the area of fraud.
0: Is there anything specific or tangible that you can articulate on what could be done to further that?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, if, if, if if you want, we should come back and have an entire talk about, um, you know, about this area and about what auditors should be doing with respect to fraud. But I'll I'll give you just one sort of, you know, I think example, but there are plenty. Um, So let's say you're inside a company and you're going to commit fraud, you know, well, it, one of the things you might want to do is you're going to want to hide it, right? I mean, again, that's the deception part of it. If you if you know where your accountants, your auditors are going to go, you know what accounts they're going to look at. Why not just commit the fraud in some other account? This would include, for example, you know, smaller accounts, right, less material accounts, accounts that let's say are not going to get much auditor attention. So what I would say is the more predictable an audit is, and and by predictable I mean where is the auditor going to go, and frankly. Where's the auditor not going to go? You know, the more predictable it is, the more likely it will be to hide the fraud. What I'd like to know is just how predictable auditors are in selecting accounts to be audited or not audited and how easy it is to hide the fraud. Um, I would say that the PCOB can look at this during the inspection process and at least sort of provide some insight into what is actually going on in the space
0: how do we know the predictability i mean i wouldn't even know to ask that question i mean i just assume that all auditors were random in their assessment i mean what makes you think that they are not random and they're predictable
1: you know so this comes to topics like materiality i think that um i think that the direction that auditing has evolved in and i think this has been promoted by pretty much everyone is it's a kind of a risk-based approach it's where is the risk of a misstatement the greatest and you know, frankly, one answer to that is, you know, when we talk about a misstatement, nobody really cares if, if the financial statements are off by a dollar, but they do care if the financial statements are off by, you know, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. The question is, where is there the greatest risk of what, of a material mistake? And really, that means mostly in material accounts, right, in the bigger accounts. So there could easily be accounts in an audit that you look at and you think, well, even if there's a problem here, it's so small, we don't really need to spend a whole lot of time with it. So the question would be, how easy is that to figure out? You know, how easy and, and of course, I doubt there's any auditor that goes to the client and says, OK, we're only looking at these accounts. Don't worry about these. But auditors and corporate officials work closely together. They probably have some understanding of what causes auditors to pick one account over another. And and the question would be, and this is, again, a question I don't know the answer to, Question would be, how easy would it be for somebody wanting to commit a fraud to be able to say, well, okay, it's really highly unlikely the auditors are ever going to look at these accounts. Let's just create that fraud there. You know, and, and what you can have, of course, is a fraud where it's, you know, it's a small amount in each one of those accounts, but it adds up in the aggregate. So there are a lot of areas. You know, it 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 doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the standard per se, but but you know, one would want to know what is going on in practice, and could let's say the PCOB through
2: maybe inspections or guidance, kind of an encourage approach that makes it harder to hide the fraud. Maybe. So, in your opinion, is it more about auditors doing a better job on their current standards, or their role needing to be expanded more, or a little bit of both?
1: This is a big question. There's an approach out there that, that that says you have to meet the standards. And it there is not an approach. The PCIB certainly does not have an approach of issuing guidance on what the standards ought to require. So let me let me give you an, an example of that. Uh, there is a standard that says if you find illegal activity during the audit, you need to report it to the board. It doesn't say you have to go look for it, but it says if you're doing the audit and you stumble across something, you have to report it to the board. And it really is quite broad, right? It says it it means if there's an OSHA problem or an EPA problem, it's not an accounting problem. You just find something that's illegal or it looks like it might be illegal. You got to report it to the board. But there's an element of the standard that says, but you don't have to report it to the board if it's clearly inconsequential. So that's the language in the standard. Now there's no meaningful interpretation of what clearly inconsequential means. So if the PCOB wants to sort of make sure that illegal activity is being reported to the board, it seems to me the PCOB could provide guidance on what clearly inconsequential means. In other words, you don't want something that's clearly inconsequential needs to be really, really unimportant. And you need to sort of focus on and, and say kind of what that means. And the PCOB hasn't done that. That's a holdover from the self-regulatory period. In the self-regulatory period, standards were adopted and guidance was, was rare. What I think is, if you go again back to the SEC, when the SEC puts a rule in place, a standard is like a rule, the SEC then constantly updates what the rule means through issuing guidance, Um, you know, and things like that. The PCRB really has no history of doing that. Imagine if the SEC, every time it wanted to update a rule, had to actually amend the rule. The whole system of administrative law over at the SEC would shut down because it would mean the entire organization was just constantly updating rules. But the approach at the PCOB is if you want the standard to be different, if you want to have something in there about clearly inconsequential, you have to amend the standard. You can't do it through guidance. I think that needs to change.
0: I didn't appreciate that or fully understand that. So are you saying that they're statutorily or organizationally prohibited in giving guidance and they have to update the standard, or it's a choice that they're not issuing guidance. It's a
1: choice. Yeah, it's a choice. There there is, you know, again, this is something that I kind of explored when I was there. There is a view in the in the profession, and again, I think it existed in the self-regulatory era and it continues in the PCOB era. There's a view that the standards speak for themselves. And and so one of the reasons I think that's the case is when you adopt a standard what then happens is the, the profession goes out and they take that standard and they, and they implement it, right? They create kind of procedures designed to make sure the standard is met and they kind of get to decide what the term means and how they want to implement it. And I think that's just the way it was always done, right? But I think that that's not, you know, I think, I think in the self-regulatory era, maybe that was okay. I'm not so sure. It's a lot of discretion that ends up staying with the, with the audit profession. But in, a, but in a PCOB era, I think interpretation and guidance becomes much more important. And the PCOB is really not set up to do it. And it really doesn't have a staff inside whose job is to do that. So, for example, you know, at the SEC, you can file a no action letter. You can say to the SEC, hey, I'm thinking about doing it this way. What do you think? You know, you can kind of get sort of individual guidance like that p c o b doesn't have a no action letter process when when we when the p c o b was implementing critical audit matters so you know firms are out there trying to figure out what's a critical audit matter and how should we say it you know should there be a mechanism where they could write to the p c o b and say, can we do it this way? Maybe how about technology? Firms will think, well, if we implement this technology, you know how does it work with the p c o b standards Should there be a mechanism where they write to the p c o b and say you know, hey, if we use this technology, will this suffice for purposes of the standards? And then those interpretations are made public. There's no mechanism for that at the PCOB. And as I read the statute, there's nothing that prevents that from being implemented. It just hasn't been done. I think it's again a carryover from the self regulatory era that hasn't really been re examined.
0: What about through soft power, speeches, announcing examination programs or focus areas? Can the PCOB kind of influence behavior? Uh, by what it says it's going to do in those
1: dimensions, there is no question that they can, and I think that that firms pay close attention to what the p c o b says and so this is again another e- example of where if the p c o b put out guidance, firms would 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 pay attention to it and presumably implement it. I don't think there's any question about it so so then the question is shouldn't they be doing it more often, and you know what i would what I would also say is is that the speeches and things like that are very important, very valuable, very good, And I hopefully gave a, you know, a reasonable number of them um, while I was there. But at the end of the day, you know, if you want to, let's say, bring an enforcement case, or you want to cite somebody in an inspection report for not doing it right, you know you can't say it's hard to say, I think. Well, you, invi- you violated one board member's speech. What, what they said in a speech. So some of this stuff needs to be reflected in the actual policies of the PCOB. But having said that, speeches are a really important way, I think, to get information out to the profession that the profession pays close attention to.
0: So sticking on the theme of detecting fraud and misconduct, can we talk about Chinese firm audits for a moment? Sure. So there's been an ongoing long lasting controversy about gaining access to auditor work. In those jurisdictions and that's now spilled over into whether or not you know chinese firms should be able to list on exchanges and you know there's been some delisting procedures and so forth and i think some of those concerns have now transferred from one administration to the next can you just give us your view on what you think about that issue specifically what the pcb has done and you know what they should do
1: yeah i i you know the PCOB. So, first of all, of course, you know, as you're sort of alluding to, the PCOB in its statute has the authority to inspect foreign audit firms. You know, that's foreign audit firms to the extent that they issue an audit opinion for a company traded in the U.S. So, it's actually not at all uncommon to have a a company traded in the U.S. use an overseas audit firm. It's most common, obviously, when it's an overseas company, they use an audit firm in their own country. So, if we have a German company trading in the U.S., they're going to use probably a german auditor so the pcob if you're traded in the us has the right to inspect your audit firm so the pcob devotes a lot of time and attention and resources to inspecting overseas audit firms and I, and I'll tell you when I was at the pcob I tried to go on a lot of inspections because that's the primary function of the pcob and I went on an overseas inspection just to kind of see how different it was, and sort of you know what the what what the staff had to go through. And you can imagine that that it's that it's complicated, right? There's overseas regulators, there's different languages, there's different cultures. It's 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 difficult, but yet but the PCOB is resolute about about these inspections and 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 inspects them on the same cycle, you know, that they inspect other audit firms. So it's important, right, to make sure that the quality of the audits. By foreign audit firms are are good. So the you know the difficulty in China has been, the PCOB has been unable, at least you know at least it seemed that way while I was there, to go over and conduct the kind of inspections that that they feel like they needed one in China. I I think the main impediment. I think this has evolved over time. I think the main impediment is that the Chinese government has a view of not wanting foreign agents. Let's say to see um, materials that they view as sort of matters of national importance or something like that. And I think, you know, they have a broader, de- they seem to have a broader definition of that. You know, if, if, if they were to say you can't see, you know, top secret defense stuff, maybe that would be okay. I don't know. But, but you know, I think they have a very broad definition of it. So there have been limits, I think, on, on PCOB inspections. Now, you know, the legislation, of course, reflects a, ref- a, a frustration with the PCOB's on inability to do that. I view the PCOB as having some ability in this space to sort of maybe try to influence uh, what happens. So while we were while I was there, the PCOB brought three cases against uh, Chinese audit firms that were not filing required reports at the at the PCOB, and and the reports were um, you know that that if you're an audit firm and you let's say you're sanctioned by a foreign regulator by a U.S. regulator too, but by a foreign regulator. You have to file a form with the PCOB that says hey everybody i was sanctioned right because those forms are public and the public has a right to know and so there were actually audit firms that were literally sanctioned by chinese regulators and so the PCOB brought three actions you know for for failing to file these reports and i have to say if you go look at the public record um you know firms also have to file other kinds of reports and you can tell in the public record Uh, that there are other reports that Chinese audit firms and other audit firms as well, that Chinese audit firms have not filed. And the PCOB, what they did was they fined those uh, Chinese audit firms, I think $10,000 or something for, you know, for not filing the forms. And, you know, I look at that and I think, you know, if you're a jurisdiction where the PCOB is not inspecting, it seems to me that filing forms, especially for things like regulatory uh, violations, are even more important. And I kind of wonder whether, you know, you could, if you found firms in jurisdictions where inspections weren't allowed, you couldn't take a more, whether the consequences shouldn't be more severe. And the consequences that the PCOB has available, kind of its list of sanctions can be fines. It can be a number of things. It also could be deregistering the firm so that they can't conduct audits anymore of companies traded in the U.S. So. I think the PCOB has a lot of potential ways to try to help advance the discussion and influence the debate. And, you know, I don't know how much they always take advantage of all of those avenues.
0: So, I mean, the ultimate penalty is exiting the U.S. market, not having access to U.S. investors. And we've seen some of that. Are you saying that there are interstitial remedies that could be pursued to avoid that ultimate consequence the PCOB could help facilitate?
1: I think you know when you're talking about exiting the markets. Of course, now we're moving to the company themselves, right? It's you know, and and the PCOB's jurisdiction is really limited to the auditor. But if at the end of the day, the purpose of the legislation is how do you get effective inspections of of Chinese companies traded in the U.S.? How do you get effective inspections of their auditors? You know, and, and one way to do that is to say, if, if you can't inspect, then the, then the company itself is going to have to leave the U.S. markets. So what I wonder about is how much could you get the Chinese government perhaps to be more willing to allow the kind of inspections that the PCOB needs and wants by having a more, let's say, protracted, aggressive enforcement policy with respect to the audit firms? That what they know is, is that as long as inspections aren't allowed, the PCOB will take a very hard line towards violations of other requirements. So, you know, that's at least a possibility of a way to try to induce maybe, a, a you know, a, a more balanced approach to inspections.
2: You refer to phrases like "clearly inconsequential" uh, that have no definitive meaning. Can you discuss the trade-off of having more concrete auditing standards versus allowing for more discretion by the auditors?
1: Yeah, I mean, that comes back again to sort of this this principles based notion. Right. So so what's really interesting is, you know, when you look at the at the standards, there is one very specific requirement. And that very specific requirement is that when an auditor audits inventory, it has to go observe the inventory. There's some exceptions to it. And I think if the inventory is in like a third party warehouse or something, there's some exceptions. But for the most part, you know, if you're counting the number of widgets, you know, that a company has an in inventory. You literally have to go look at it, and that during the pandemic was, you know, created some real difficulties, right? Because with with travel less and things like that, you know, it was harder. And I think uh, I think there were audit firms that were out using, you know, remote, you know, approaches, and and I think maybe drones or some possibility in this area, you know, and things like that. So, you know, you can you can, um, uh, you know, looking at this kind of stuff, you know, it's a very specific requirement. But here's the the interesting thing: that requirement was put in place. I might have the year wrong, but I'm going to say in nineteen forty two or three or something, so what happened was there was an audit of a company it turned out the audit it turned out the company was engaging in fraudulent activities, and one of the ways they were engaging in fraudulent activities was that they, their inventory was fictitious you know and so and so what had happened was during the audit, the audit had examined the paperwork you know. Did you buy a number of widgets or did the widgets get sent to the warehouse? Oh, all the paperwork is there. But they never actually went and looked at the widgets. So it turned out the widgets weren't there. So after that, sometime in the 1940s, the audit standards were changed to say, well, you better go actually look at the inventory. So what that really means is, for the most part, when you do a, an audit, you have to look at the inventory. That means that if you don't look at the inventory, that's to some degree a deficient audit. So that's not a principles-based approach. That's a prescriptive requirement so but but there's very few things in the audit standards that are like that so are there other places where let's say at least for big companies you know you would want to say or or big audit firms auditing big companies you would want to say there are certain things in an audit you always have to do right and i think the answer is sometimes you do but if you focus only on a principles-based approach and, and again, a principles based approach that has to apply to the biggest firms in the world and also the one person firm that's auditing the inactive public company. You have to, by definition, come up with something that's so general and vague that there really are very few very specific requirements. Now, nobody wants a set of audits where, where the audits are, here's a checklist of things and you have to do these, you know, 47 things. Because, of course, with between those 47 things can be a lot of stuff. That, that, that also needs to be looked at. So judgment is always going to be a big part and an important part of an audit. But sometimes there have to be things, it seems to me, and sometimes investors want to know that there are things that they know were looked at, you know, and that were looked at in a certain serious way. And so, so I would say that the one of the ways that can be implemented is standards can be written with some greater with some specific requirements, but it also can be done through guidance. I think that if the PCOB were issuing guidance and saying, you know, coming back to when we were talking about predictability and unpredictability, if they issued guidance that said, here's what predictability looks like and you shouldn't do that, here's what unpredictability looks like and you should do that, there's no reason the PCOB can't provide that kind of guidance. And then that kind of becomes some of the specifics. You better make sure you meet that level of unpredictability.
0: So we've been talking about public company audits, but there's this whole universe of private companies. And there was a recent Wall Street Journal article on the efficacy of those audits. So Gene Eaglesham and Coulter-Jones wrote an article where they said firms that audit private entities essentially police each other, often with no public disclosure. And only 4% of the audits failed and the, none of the biggest hundred failed. And 90% of those, 99% of those got the highest pass score in contrast the aicpa uh, said that more than one in four audits reviewed last year were flawed and those aren't required to be made public i'm just wondering are you familiar with the issue do you have any views on it is this as big as that article made it out to be in terms of concern
1: yeah you know this is very interesting because of course as we talked about earlier you know the pcob has oversight over auditors of public companies but dodd frank after the madoff scandal gave the pcob oversight of auditors of broker dealers and literally almost all of the broker dealers are private companies you know there are very few if any freestanding public brokers now there are big brokers they're subsidiaries of other public companies you know things like that but but most brokers still are relatively small, and certainly they're private. So the PCOB has actually had a fair amount of experience auditing private companies. In the broker-dealer auditor space, the PCOB issues an annual report about the results of those inspections, and it's it, there are a lot of deficiencies, there are a lot of problems in those private company audits. You know, so it it is an issue, and 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 one of the things that the PCOB needs to tackle that it did not tackle while I was there is. PCOB is operating for purposes of oversight of auditors of broker-dealers under an interim program. So when Dodd-Frank was adopted in 2010, they quickly, again, much to the credit of that board then, put in place an inspection process for these auditors of broker-dealers, but it was an interim program. And here we are, you know, 11 years later, it's still an interim program. So one of the things that's missing, this comes back to the the publicity and the the public disclosure. What happens in the broker-dealer space Unlike the public company space, when the PCOB inspects a firm uh, uh, that does public companies, it issues a a specific report that says this firm, you know, audited a bunch of companies and here's what we found when we inspected. And it makes it public. And firms have a real strong incentive, I think, to want to reduce, uh, you know, the number of deficiencies in these public reports. The interim program for broker dealers, there's, there's only an annual report that's an aggregate annual report that says kind of here's what we found kind of, you know, in, in in total. What the broker-dealer program doesn't do is issue a specific report that says firm X audit as a certain number of broker-dealers, and here is what we found. So uh, I think there's in the broker-dealer space, in the private company space that the, that the PCOB operates in, there's less publicity that's firm-specific, there's less accountability. And I believe that when there when there is a permanent program and there's some degree of maybe specific disclosure with respect to the the, bro- the auditors or broker dealers, I think there'll be more accountability, and I think quality will get better. So I think there is a relationship between quality and and publicity. You know, I, I think the PCOB right now has its hands full with its current mission. So I'm not sure that you know we want to have the PCOB looking at you know private company audits. Uh, you know kind of across the board but i but i do think that that the PCOB shows from from inspecting private auditors of broker auditors of private broker dealers there are some concerns in the
2: space so in your opinion what is the solution to these deficient private company audits do we need a version of the PCOB for the private company auditors
1: yeah i don't have a view on that i you know i i think that um when you create a regulator you know there's certainly costs and there's organization and things like that. And so I think somebody above my pay grade would need to sit down and kind of weigh all of those pros and cons.
0: Let's uh, shift a little bit. We're getting near the end of our our time with you and we appreciate it. But we did want to touch on a couple of things that came towards the end of your tenure. And I think I would call them the failures to accomplish certain goals. And you've previewed some of them already. And I'm hoping you can expand on that a little bit, and I'll just make note of two public statements that you made, one in October of twenty twenty and the other in November of twenty twenty about some of the shortfalls of the funding of certain programs and offices that weren't stood up, and also just some shortfalls generally you know now that you've left, you've had some time to reflect. Do you have any additional thoughts? do you want to explain your original thoughts, and do you have any new views on them
1: Yeah, I mean I you know. Again, what I think is the, the PCOB, first of all, it needs to have an adequate budget that, that will fund the activities that it's required to implement. You know, and you know, one of the things that I pointed out was in my in my remarks was that you know we have an inspection program where the number of uh, FTEs, you know, the number of people in the inspection division hadn't really changed. It had been reduced, I think, the first year I was there and then sort of stayed the same. But of course, what we were seeing during the pandemic era was there was some degree of backlog that was created as a result of the pandemic um, of, of inspections that couldn't happen. A lot of them, I think, were overseas inspections. And so, of course, what I thought was, well, now we need to catch up. Yet, the, yet it seemed like the number of people in the inspections division stayed the same you know, what should happen there, what should the right number be? Uh, you know, it's that's an issue of debate, but I felt like it required more thought and consideration. You know, so I was willing to kind of say that. The other thing is is that again, you know, for me, the PCOB really ought to be the thought leader in the in the audit space, or at least the leader that's bringing the thought leaders together. Have the discussions, things are moving rapidly, you know we haven't even talked about technology, you know they're moving rapidly and and things are changing, and you know there's lots of discussion right It's all kind of out there in the ether, but somebody needs to focus the discussion on the direction audit it should move in, and the p c o b really should do that, so it needs to have the resources and the offices and the outreach I think to accomplish that so you know those are still areas where I think there 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 could be improvement
0: following on that thread. You mentioned this this word technology and i was just reminded of one particular text on uh, technology called xbrl that was rolled out over a decade ago and the sec just proposed its first rule i think its first rule in the new administration which i think mandates would mandate xbrl for a form called npx and uh, i also was trying to remember you were a member of the investment advisory committee of the sec back in 2012 following dodd frank I think it was proposed back then. Were you part of that? And what do you think of XBRL and the you know the promise it holds for more advanced technology in the audit?
1: Well, let me let me be quick on that, and then just give you a quick comment on technology. Um, look, I think XBRL is incredibly important because it means that data can be captured and studied in a very cost-effective way through software. And so, you know, I you know, the promise of, of XBRL hasn't been met. Um, but that's mostly an issue for the SEC, and, and, and the SEC needs to sort of take whatever steps are necessary. In the space of technology with respect to audit firms, you know, my sense is, yeah, I hear it all the time, right? Well, there's technology, and, and, and it's important, and it should be integrated in. My sense is, is that technology is mostly designed to make audits more efficient and to improve the interface with clients. I'm not sure that the focus with technology has been on improving audit quality. So let me again give you an example. I personally think that the time has arrived, that audits should be conducting full population testing, and that should be the norm, at least for large companies that have really invested significantly into digitizing their database. That means that when you go in, you don't sample, you look at everything. Now, every time you say that, you're constant objections. Well, if you look at everything, you're gonna get a lot of false positives. You know, and it's a lot of anomalies. and They all have to be run down. It's expensive. And do we need to spend our hours that way and things like that? I've been hearing that for a long time. In my opinion, I think the investor community would get a lot more comfort and solace from knowing that when you look at a, at a population of data within the firm, a population of transactions, you frankly looked at them all. And that's going to make it harder to make mistakes. And it's going to make it harder to hide fraud. But you know what? We're still not there yet. We're still, you know, even for these large companies, it's okay to sample a hundred transactions for 40 million transactions and say, well, we looked at a hundred of them, everything is okay. I think we should be looking at all of them. And so, you know, I think more needs to be done in that space too, both by the by the firms, but also uh, I think this is something the PCRB could encourage.
0: Well, Jay, we appreciate your time with us today. And before we go, I want to give uh, Min-Jay the
2: opportunity to ask uh, the last question of the interview, whatever he desires. So I think you've discussed a lot on what the PCAOB can do going forward, but just to sum it up for our listeners, uh, what do you think are the three things that are the most important for them to address in the near future?
1: Yeah, I I, I think, you know, it's one thing. It's It's integrating in. The interests of investors and the public. But I think there are a lot of ways to do it. You know, so I think transparency is critically important. I think outreach is critically important. And I think that thinking about how the the PCOB does things that are a reflection of how it was done in the self-regulatory era when investors really weren't involved. So guidance, you know, giving sort of regular guidance, no action letter processes. Revisiting whether principles-based standards should be modified to some degree, you know, through through uh, you know some more specific requirements, or at least differentiation among the different firms and things like that. I think all of that needs to be reexamined and rethought. Now, maybe the PCOB ends up in the same position it's in now, but but I think it needs to be rethought, and I think it needs to be rethought by going out and asking investors, in particular, what they think and want. So I think that needs to be the, the primary focus. Let's say over the next sort of period of time
0: great jay thanks so much for joining us
1: yeah my pleasure scott i enjoyed it thank you guys
0: we hope you enjoyed today's episode if you did please tell others about it it was great to have jay come on to talk about the pcob because it's an important regulator but a little known or understood regulator outside of the accounting profession that is it was created by congress following the enron and worldcom scandals and as jay noted it's a nonprofit, a self-regulatory organization, or sometimes called an SRO. The US is one of the few jurisdictions, maybe the only jurisdiction that has such arrangements where the industry regulates itself subject to federal oversight. In the case of the PCOB, that's the SEC. The SEC also oversees other self-regulatory organizations like the MSRB for municipal securities or FINRA for broker-dealers. In relative terms, the PCOB is a rather young regulator, an adolescent at only 18 years of age, not even legal drinking age. So perhaps it's not surprising that as Jay pointed out, based on his experience there, there also remains a lot of work to do to update the standards. Two things that stood out for me for this interview. First, the PCOB doesn't issue guidance on its standards. Given my years as a market regulator, this was surprising to me because most rules that I was involved in drafting at the SEC never considered every possible permutation of what could happen after the rule became effective. Issuing guidance was the way to clarify what the regulator meant when the market was confused. And it's much easier to do that than write a new rule, or better than doing nothing, which can lead to uncertainty and inconsistent practices. And second, Jay talks about the potential that academics have to offer an agency like the PCOB in advancing our understanding and knowledge of optimal practices. I agree. He's an academic, and so am I, so perhaps it's not surprising that we both hold these views, but it is undeniable that regulators have a lot of private data, which we want them to keep securely private, but can tell us a lot about the efficacy of their practices, and that's not really being done. At the PCOB, that could be, for example, using data about their findings from examinations to build models that can help predict where there will be audit failures and also potentially fraud at companies being audited. Today's episode is a production of the Salem Center for Policy housed in the McComb School of Business at the University of Texas at Austin. Our series is part of the UT Podcast Network. The opinions expressed in this interview are those of the hosts and the guests and not the University of Texas at Austin. Today's student executive producers are Abby Sawyer and Zoe Tarr of the Moody's College of Communication. <music>